listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey everyone. So today is May 14th, 2020, and here in Oregon, we are about two months into the stay-home order. How are things feeling in your world right now? For us at the Dougie Center, we are settling into a routine of providing virtual support groups for kids, teens, young adults, and their adult family members. It's weird, but it works, and we are so grateful for the technology that allows us to still come together and create community and connection. If you're looking for a virtual support group, reach out to me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. While our virtual program is limited to those who will be able to attend in person when we can do that again, if you live outside the Portland metro area, I can still help connect you with other resources. Yesterday, you may have seen the news that Melissa Etheridge's 21-year-old son Beckett died from opioid use. I saw her post about his death just as I was finishing up editing this episode, and it made me catch my breath. That's because this episode, with author Paula Becker, is also about the death of a child. A child who struggled with substance use and addiction throughout his teen and young adult years. Paula's oldest son, Hunter, died in 2017. He was 25, and he was riding the Greyhound bus from their home in Seattle to the Bay Area of California. Hunter had recently relapsed and was using substances again, and he had asked for the bus ticket in the hopes of recalibrating in a new environment. The bus stopped in southern Oregon for a break, and when it was time to leave again, the bus driver drove away as Hunter was trying to reboard. Rather than stop, the driver kept going, hitting and killing Hunter. After hearing from other passengers who were on that bus about the driver's actions, Paula and her husband, Barry, decided to file a wrongful death suit. Just recently, the case finished, and the jury ruled in favor of Paula and Barry. Paula reached out to me soon after the case concluded and offered to talk with me about what it's like to go through filing a wrongful death suit, what it was like to delve into the details of Hunter's death, and to sit in front of a jury telling her story of grief and heartbreak. Paula also wrote a book about the years she spent parenting Hunter through his addiction. It's called A House on Stilts, and it takes readers deep into the reality of parenting when a child struggles with substance use. While Paula had braced herself many times for the reality that addiction could end Hunter's life, she never imagined that he would die the way he did. Paula, thank you so much first for writing this book, A House on Stilts, and also for reaching out to me and allowing me to read it and for being on Grief Out Loud today with me. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be talking with you. Let's start where we usually start on Grief Out Loud, with talking about our person. So tell us a little bit about your son, Hunter. When do you think, when you think of him, like what age do you think of him being? That is such an interesting question, Jana. Um, Hunter was 25 when he was killed, and 
I think um, because he still feels very present to me, I think of him as 25. Um, but part of the complication of my um, relationship with Hunter is that he suffered from addiction for about 10 years before he was killed. And the kind of sort of anticipatory grieving that I went through during those years caused me to kind of have to lose sight and lose hold of the memory of who he was as a child. Since his death, that child memory kind of has come back to me. And I will say that while I think of him as 25, when I dream, he's a little boy. What kind of little boy was Hunter? (laughs) Oh, he was just a fierce, energetic, whip-smart little boy. He loved to read. He loved to climb. He got passionately interested in something. You know, if he decided that he liked trains, then boy, the family learned absolutely everything there was about, (laughs) you know, from steam trains to, you know, diesels to, I mean, the whole nine yards. He was a passionate, passionate person. So you mentioned Hunter struggling with substance use for many, many years. And, And I was thinking about how, as a culture, as a society, our understanding of substance use and and struggles with addiction are changing, like our understanding of what that is. How did that, how did your personal understanding of that struggle shift over time? I feel like even in the two and a half years since Hunter um, was killed, that society has become much, much more compassionate around the issue of addiction and um, that we have much more understanding how devastating it is for families, you know? So it's not as much about blame and it's more about compassion, both for the person who is battling addiction and for the family. Now, when we were going through all of this, starting back in um, about 28, 29, 2010, when he went to his first rehab, nobody was talking about it out in the open. It wasn't in the newspaper, you know, they there was a lot more, I wouldn't say among my personal community blame. I did not feel that, but there was quite a lot of horror and kind of pulling back when I would reveal what we were going on, we had going on. And and I think it was a very natural impulse among other parents, even kind parents to say, oh my God, if it can happen to Paula and Barry, it can happen to me and I don't want it to happen to me. Yeah, like that instinctual distancing. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear about this because then I might have to imagine how it could be part of my life. Right. And I understand that because I, you know, probably would have been the same way if I had not had this come into my life. You know, Um, it's very much easier to say, you know, la, 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 (laughs) I'm not going to look at that. But unfortunately, more and more people in our society do not have that choice anymore. This is kind of an odd question, but you just mentioned how you could imagine if you had been in a different role, you might have been in that place of like, I don't want to look at this. Was that an element of your experience throughout Hunter's struggle with substance use? Were there times where you're like, I don't want to look at this? (laughs) Yeah, well, I didn't want to look at any of it. But um, I, (laughs) I feel like it took a lot of convincing for me to see what was right in front of my face because I had so much faith in 
Hunter as a reasonable person because he was a very, you know, reasonable child and and, uh, thoughtful about things. And so when the behaviors that I was seeing did not fit into the metrics that I had for understanding Hunter's behavior, instead of saying, whoa, (laughs) the house is on fire, I thought, you know, well, this can't possibly be what I'm seeing. And, you know, I know that, you know, he's going to self-correct or we'll, we'll take these interventions and surely something will work. I was in that kind of hopeful denial. That's a natural kind of a thing. You know, we, we can't, most of us who who haven't had experience with the kind of um, issues that come up when a, a family member is abusing substances it takes a while to kind of learn what that world looks like. And that world is changing, of course, as as you're learning what it is. It's very much a feeling of being off balance. I did not identify some of what I was feeling during those years as grief until after Hunter was killed. And after he died, I could look back at that decade and I could say, oh my God, I was grieving my idea of what I was afraid his future would be and I was grieving the loss of that child that I felt like I couldn't think about anymore because it made me just so sad. And I was grieving his present because I felt like he was changing something drastically for the worse. And to be able to identify that subsequently as grief gave me so much, so much relief. And I feel like, you know, if I have a message for families who are who are going through a child's addiction right now it's okay to claim the fact that what you're feeling is grief and naming something is a very powerful thing yeah it's a it's a great point that for so long grief as a word was only associated with someone actually dying you know and then over the last 20 years we've been like oh, okay there's grief if someone has an illness and there's grief if someone is approaching their death and so to think about all the ways that we grieve the big and small losses of the past, the present, and the future with someone, especially if they're struggling with substance use. You mentioned how, you know, early on in in Hunter's experience with, with substances that, you know, people didn't really know how to interact and they wanted to keep that distance. How did that shift when Hunter died, when he was killed, did how the community engaged with what quote unquote, like legitimate grief change in some way? You know, um, there had always been some people who had been very supportive, but also during Hunter's addiction. Also, I had, um, you know, become quite used to living with the fear for his present and his future and also getting on with my business and doing what I had to do. So I was very functional. By the end of the years of his addiction, I was a functional parent of a child who had addiction, right? So there wasn't, I think, the perceived need for support, you know, so much, except people who were very, very close to the story. After he died, people just flooded in toward us. And a lot of them were people who had been really good friends when he was young, you know, the parents of kids who play dates and preschool and rides and soccer. Those people came flooding back. And what they brought to me was the memory of Hunter as a little boy because they, many of them had not had any relationship with him and often very little with me 
as our lives had gone in these completely different directions. And those people just were incredibly compassionate and not judgmental. And I think they wouldn't have been judgmental about him during life if I had been able to stay close to them. And I put the, um, not blame exactly, but I see that the reason that I couldn't be close to those families sometimes had to do with the fact that while I was so happy that their kids were doing well and I loved their kids, it just hurt so much to be in the presence of that. As you're talking, Paula, it makes me have this image of like connecting with these people who knew Hunter as a little boy and how they had such well-preserved memories of him when he was yeah. that age and how your memories had been infiltrated by the experience of his addiction and, and the pain of like, I can't hold those memories quite so dear and close because it's too painful to juxtapose that with what the reality is in the present, present time with him. Exactly. And it, it was, it was a real gift to have um, one, one mom in particular, she, she showed up at our doorstep when I was on the phone with my brother-in-law talking about what he was going to say when he spoke at Hunter's Memorial. And it was this incredibly intense phone conversation. And I just gestured to her to come in. She came and she sat on the couch. And when, when I hung up the phone, she just looked at me and she said, I don't know if I can say this. She said, our little boys in rain boots, our little boys in rain boots. And I was like, Oh man, Eleanor, that's something I have not let myself think of in years. Cause you know, in the Pacific Northwest kids like live in rubber boots year round. <laughs> right. And that was what she was remembering. You know, her son and my son splashing around and always in their boots at story hour or the park, or it didn't matter where the boots were a constant. And it was like, ah, it felt good to have those memories be safe again, because you know, reclaiming them didn't mean negotiating with a current, you know, changing hunter. I don't know if that makes sense. That makes so much sense. And it also makes me wonder, you mentioned your husband, Barry, and that, you know, the two of you went through this experience together as a couple. How did that shift for the two of you in your relationship, imagining that so much of your conversation and your energy and your thought process together was focused on supporting Hunter, navigating his addiction? How did it shift once Hunter died? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, we, we were really had already approached the point where we had, had experienced a little bit of an empty nest because when Hunter died, um, Lily, our youngest, had, had, had just had her first year of college. So we actually had had time to, you know, have fun with each other and, you know, focus on each other. And the Hunter piece of it was always there. But many of the other things that went along with having three kids, you know, had stepped back a little bit. So we had had a good year of, of um, enjoying each other's company. But one of the first things that, and I don't even know why, why I, saw, I thought to do this, but it just seemed really important to me. Just days after Hunter was killed, I said to Barry, we need to accept how each other grieves and we need not to judge how each other is feeling and if I'm having a good day and you're having a bad day, you need to not feel guilty because, or, you know, try to feel jealous because I'm having a good day and, and, you know, don't feel guilty if, um, don't try to make me feel better to, you know, like we don't have to match and we, we need to just support the fact that we're going through this together, but we're going to feel different on different days. And then that has to be okay. It's not a competition and, 
he was like, yes. And we made that pact. It really, really helped because, of course, there were days and weeks when we both were feeling terrible. And then there might be a day where he would say, I feel a little bit better today. And I knew that my job was to say, that's great. My job wasn't to try to feel better that day, right? Mm -hmm. My job was to feel what I felt. Because we gave each other that permission, that was the biggest support in being able to go through the grieving process together, for sure. Yeah, it's amazing. You sort of distilled the Dougie Center model down into a (laughs) a short conversation. (laughs) I don't know how, but... (laughs) And speaking of, of other family members, you mentioned your youngest child, Lily, and then Hunter had a younger brother named Sawyer. Yeah. And in your book, A House on Stilts, you talk about navigating, like being there for Hunter, supporting him, trying to figure out what's going to work best, but then also trying to protect, preserve opportunities for your younger children to have their own identities and their own relationships with their brother what was that process like? Well, it was like walking along a razor blade for many, many years. That's what it was like. Um, we, Barry and I felt very committed we, to the idea that even though the troubles that Hunter was having were huge, that we were not going to let that bring the whole family down. We thought of it like something lugging around the wheel. You know, we were not going to let our whole family be lugging around this, uh, everything that came along with the, the drug use and the eventual addiction. And that was complicated. It meant that I never said to either Sawyer or Lily, you know, oh, you need to X with Hunter or, oh, you know, I mean, I didn't try to get in between their relationship at all. And so at various points, Sawyer and Hunter were closer. At various points, Sawyer pulled back, I think, for his own, you know, kind of emotional protection or because eventually it was hard to see what came along with Hunter's addiction, what that, you know, how that hurt Barry and me, how that hurt the whole family. But it meant that, you know, we we celebrated their joys and they as they were doing well we really let them do that and it and there were times that the two things overlapped you know I remember him particularly one time I mean Hunter really wanted to show up for them too and he would even though sometimes it was hard and one time he showed up for one of Lily's um, high school plays and I could tell that he was having a lot of anxiety around it and, you know, he felt very, very different from a lot of the other siblings who were older graduates or whatever standing in that line waiting to get into the theater and that when the other parents would say, oh, well, what do you do, Hunter? I mean, he did not have a good answer for that at that point and it was scary and hard, but he would still show up. So the two things overlapping, that happened a lot. And I I tried to be there if Sawyer and Lily asked questions, but I tried not to thrust any information about what was happening with Hunter on them unless they absolutely needed to know. And I'm imagining other parents out there who have, you know, a family member, whether it's a child or another family member who has an addiction or struggled with an addiction or substance use, having some fear or concern of other people in the family being vulnerable to that. And, and how did you manage maybe that fear, that anxiety, and also talking with Sawyer and Lily? So I think that 
that that is a huge concern. And I'm basing this, I mean, I dodged that bullet, thank goodness, <laughs> because uh, that would have been like I was carrying what I thought was as much as I could carry. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we don't get to say, right? But I'm glad I didn't have to carry two kids um, with addiction, but, but many people do. And people come up to me at readings, especially because a lot of the people who come to hear me talk about my book, A House on Stilts, have a child who's going through addiction. And many times someone will say to me afterwards, both my kids are on the street, but I have two kids. I lost the older one. The second one is, you know, in active addiction. I mean, I, that is a story that I hear a lot. And there are also families who are often it's the younger, but sometimes the older child who isn't struggling with addiction is just brought to their knees by grief and pain and depression because of the situations that have been brought into their life because of their siblings addiction. And I think this was something I was sort of vaguely aware when we were going through it. Oh, you know, we should, yes, Hunter needs therapy, but you know, we, we should, you know, offer Sawyer and Lily therapy. And we did. And and some of that was taken, but I, I didn't see nearly as much that addiction is a disease that affects the whole family and that there should be, you know, treatment, really good treatment available to everybody to support them going through this. It can't fix it, but it can support them getting through this without further damaging their own psyche and spirit. So Paula, uh, changing direction a little in our conversation, a big part of your story is that you know, Hunter struggled with addiction, and he he ended up dying because he was he was killed. He was hit by a bus, and your family filed a wrongful death suit against that bus company, which is an experience that I think families have, but a lot of families don't. We don't hear about it that much publicly. So, what was that experience like for you? Well, you know, it's it's really interesting. The impulse to file the wrongful death suit in our particular case came because I mean we were we were just willing to say oh my gosh this is a horrible tragic accident which was how it was presented to us by the deputies on the scene and then uh, as it was reported in the in the news media people began posting comments online about this wasn't an accident I was on the bus I saw what happened the bus driver was furious the whole trip all this stuff, and we were like, oh my God, what happened? What really happened? So the impulse was that we wanted to get more information. And that really, for me, remained a big part of the suit the whole time, is that I know, I mean, I knew on some level from the very beginning that the answers I was going to hear were going to be really hard. Uh, death is terrible, so I'm not like privileging this, but when your child is run over by a bus, the answers are going to be difficult. But I felt like I was his mother and I wanted every single answer that I could possibly get. I didn't want to see pictures, but I wanted to hear from every single person I could. So that's the course of the two and a half years before our case finally went to trial was me um, and to a lesser extent Barry because he didn't want to know quite as much as I did, getting more and more and more and more and more 
pieces of information as different witnesses would be deposed, as you know, the bus company was forced to produce the 911 calls and then the call that the driver made to his dispatcher. And, and I was listening to the recordings of all this. I began to feel that I was on that bus too. And eventually I started to feel like I was under the bus with Hunter. And that was just a really intense and difficult situation. But I would not give that up even as hard as it was physically and mentally on me because in the end I did get many more answers and that helps me to live with the loss. How do the answers help? Um, they gave, they let me have the, they let me have the, uh, a, a story. They let me have a picture of what was happening. So Hunter had asked uh, us to buy him a bus ticket to California. He was trying for another start. He had relapsed here and things were not going well at all. And he wanted to be away from Seattle. So we bought him this ticket and we put him on the bus. And the last time I saw him was the night before the morning that he left. Right. So that was where my picture of Hunter came to an end. And then I w could form some kind of an idea of what we went and saw where the bus ran him over. So we went to that spot. But like all the other pieces of it, I was imagining or trying to grab for. So instead of that big blank hole, I had the story of the person who sat behind him on the bus, who she and her son talked to him as they were walking into the you know, rest stop from which he was left behind. And I had the story, I had six hours of the deposition of the bus driver, you know, to do with what I will. Uh, I had all kinds of different information from people who were sitting at different parts of the bus. And I had stories that employees had sent in about this bus driver being unfit earlier on. I mean, I had all of this and I, I could put together the one woman who was sitting behind him in particular, she said he just sat reading his books and we had these, he had had three books with him and we had them because the police had given them back. He was reading his books the whole trip down. Did he go to sleep? No, he didn't sleep. He had his earbuds in and he was reading his books. That was like someone had given me a glass of water after I'd been, you know, crawling through the desert that she could give me this picture of what the last, you know, hours of his life had been like. I mean, that was, we thrive on story and story helps us create meaning. And it's very hard to find meaning in a death, but this kind of death, you know, something sudden and something terrible. And to, to be able to weave a little bit of, you know, the idea that he was kind of having a good day and, he was, you know, he was happy, he was reading his book, he looked like he was doing well, that that comforted me. It still comforts me. When I think about a wrongful death case or any other way that the, the legal system, the justice system gets involved after somebody dies, we often hear from families who they're wanting that verdict. And there's a sense that something's really going to shift in their grief when the verdict comes. And sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't. And for you, the court case, it it ended in favor of you of recognizing the wrongful death. And how did that affect you? Did it shift things for you in a certain way? Well, yes and no. I'll tell you, I feel like going through 
the two and a half years, and of course we didn't know how long it would be, but before the case went to trial, I felt the closer it came to the time when it looked like we would go to trial, the more I needed to clutch my grief close to me, right? So it had been two and a half years, and I was still in grief, and I imagine I will always grieve Hunter's death. I can't imagine anything else, but I felt instead of letting myself have good days as the trial approached that I needed to hold on to those bad days. I needed to hold that intense grief and not let myself go on to other, you know, other, other work. I needed to do the grief work and just the grief work all the time because I knew I was going to have to go into the courtroom and I was going to have to sit on the witness stand and I was going to have to unfurl my grief because we were not asking economic damages. We were asking pain and suffering, Hunter's pain and suffering and our pain and suffering. And I was going to have to sit there and show them with my story and myself physically how much I was suffering. And I was, but instead of, you know, instead of embracing the natural progression of moving farther from the bereavement and and things evening somewhat, which I think happens for a lot of people, I had to remember always what it felt like to be in those first days, weeks, months. And that took a physical cost on me. I mean, that was a little a little uh, difficult. So what I felt when, when we went to court, I felt very, very vindicated that, that the jury agreed that his death was outrageously wrong. And what changed for me was immediately I didn't have to keep holding my grief like that. And I could just like exhale and that I had done that thing that I needed to do, which was to show, to like lift that curtain and say, this is how much it hurts. The jury was, uh, the trial was almost two, over almost two months or a little more than two months ago. And I've certainly had um, some bad days since then, but I've also had a lot of good days. And I've had a lot of, of days where I felt like, like Hunter was um, released in some way. And I also felt that, that having his name spoken again and again and again and having his story told in court was sort of karmically healing for him. And after him having had what turned out to be a really difficult life, difficult young adulthood, that there was something that had taken the weight of the ending of his life and lifted that. And part of that was being able to tell the story in a sacred court of law. I'm sitting with this image of you having to retain and allow the grief to sit in its intensity, almost like in a steam room without opening the door the whole time you're preparing for court and then having to go into court and sit on the witness stand and open the door and in a way try to like prove that your steam is real and prove <laughs> that's that a it's... very good, good description yeah it was like that you know i thought of it like uh you know if if you had had a an amputation and you know instead of letting the the wound heal every single day you rub the edge of it on a cheese grater to make it bleed mm. again that's what it felt like but the steam room story is actually probably more balanced <laughs> 
Well, and I think about the fact that that grief is a very tangible thing, but it's also a very ephemeral, hard to describe, hard to concretize thing, experience, and then having to bring it into court and lay it out. Like, here's things you can see that prove my pain, that prove my suffering as a grieving mother. Yep. Yep. That's it. Exactly. Paula, what would you most want Hunter to know about you, about your life, about your family's life? I love that question. Um, I feel like he does know it. So I'll say that I feel like what I, what I tell him, you know, whatever that means, what, wherever he is or however that works out, um, all the time that I love him so much. And I know he always knew that in his life. My, our last words to each other were how much we loved each other. And I want him to know that we're doing okay and that I will use his story to do good for other people and to try to help people understand that they owe it to themselves to show up for people who are struggling and for their families with compassion. Yeah, that comes through so blazingly clear in your book, your the way you, you write about your experience of being a mother of Hunter and being with him every step of the way through his, his struggles with addiction and, and preserving his humanity and always seeing into the core of him and, and the humanity of him and and connecting with that, with your love like that. It's just so clear in your book. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so glad that comes through. That was our reality, you know? Well, Paula, I want to thank you again for, writing this book for coming on the show today to talking with me and our listeners about about Hunter and about about you as a mother. Thank you so much and thank you for all the good work that you and the Dougie Center are doing for people around the world with this podcast. Well listeners out there, please go get this book. You gotta read it. It's uh it's not an easy read. As in, well, I mean, it's well-written, so it's easy to read that way. Uh, but as Paul and I were talking before we recorded, it's pretty searing. And um, yeah, that's what I'm going to say about it. Please go get the book. Paul, is there any particular way if people wanted to connect with you that they should reach out? Sure. Yes, I have a website. It's paulabecker.org, and you can contact me through that. I'm also on Instagram at paulabeckernow and also on Twitter at paulabeckernow. And I would be very happy to talk to anybody. And listeners, the book again is A House on Stilts, Mothering in the Age of Opioid Addiction. And thank you for listening, for being part of this community. If you want to hear any of our past episodes, you can find them wherever you find your podcasts or at our website, dougy.org. And thanks for listening and hope you'll join us again next time.